0: Let me say good morning and happy Sabbath to everyone. Happy Sabbath. It is a blessing to be here and for us to have an opportunity to hear the Lord speak to us. And I trust that God has given us beautiful statements from his word that we are going to receive into our hearts. That I believe if we receive it, it will bring about a true revival, a true reformation so that we may faithfully fulfill the great gospel commission. I'm gonna invite you to please kneel with me if you would so that we can pray together as we go through our study. Father in heaven, there is no way that flesh and blood in its natural sense can do what you want to take place in the hearts of your people. Father, I'm asking that you please take away any self-confidence, take away, dear God, anything that would hinder your spirit from being able to speak clearly to my mind and through my mouth to touch the hearts of your people. Father, we come asking you to please take our lives and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. May you open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your word. This is our prayer, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If some of you were simply looking at your bulletins, You would see on your bulletins a title that is not uh, the title for the very moment that we are going to discuss. Our topic has started on Wednesday evening where we were dealing with the last day work of evangelism. And we were talking about a model that God gave to us through the person of John the Baptist. And we were looking at John the Baptist because there are many lessons that we can learn from this dynamic character who was mightily used by God. John the Baptist was a soul winner. John the Baptist was a soul winner by reaching souls in God's church and bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, bringing them into the truth for their time and understanding that the Messiah was to come. But John the Baptist also witnessed to those outside of Israel as well. He witnessed to publicans, he witnessed to harlots, he witnessed to soldiers who were Roman soldiers. There were many people who also. Accepted the message of God's truth through the medium of John the Baptist. And we have a message today that God has given to us just the same way John had a message that God gave to him. Can you say amen to that? Now, in understanding this, we would understand also that when John went about doing his work, John was working in a time where the church was in a crisis. The church was in a horrific crisis because unfortunately, Greek education and all these things got into. The minds and hearts of the schools of the prophets of those days had gotten to the church, so therefore it affected the minds of God's people, and they brought a lot of those teachings even into the religious services. So therefore the church was in a tremendous crisis, and the reason we know that is because Jesus was standing right in front of the people's face, and even though the Messiah, who they claimed they were looking for, was right in front of their face, they couldn't even recognize him. They couldn't even see that the one whom they We're seeking to study about, was right in their face. Brothers and sisters, when the presence of Jesus is in the midst of the church and the church cannot see it, that's a crisis. But in the midst of that crisis hour in that crisis time, John saw that there was a need for a work to be done within the church, as well as there was opportunities for him to reach people outside of the church as well and bring them to God's truth. Now, here we are today. We are in 2012 and we find that in like manner, the same way that Christ came to his own and his own received him not. Unfortunately, we find that Jesus is trying to come to his own even today and his own are still not receiving him. I remember I was in Romania and when I was in Romania, I sat down with the uh, with uh, the conference president there. And he wanted to meet with me. He said he wanted to talk with me and talk with uh, my associate, another dear brother that I had the privilege of working with, Brother Narlan Edwards. And he and I sat in the meeting with the president and his staff, and we were talking about revival and reformation. And I, I said, sir, do you believe that God's church is in need of revival and reformation? And he said, I believe it. I accept it. I believe what God has said through his servant. And I believe what our dear uh, general conference president has taken the stand. He says, I'm in full harmony with him. And I said, good. I said, so that means that you do understand that our churches are dead. (laughs) And it got about as quiet as it got in here just now. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, come again. And I remember, you know, his staff And they were asking, well, what do you mean by that? I said, listen, by the physiological definition. In other words, if we were to look at it from a scientific or medical standpoint, the only type of people that need to be revived are people who have stopped breathing. Any any doctors can say amen? (laughs) So therefore, in like manner, I said, if we believe we need revival and we need reformation, then we must testify that our churches have gotten to a state that they stop breathing, and they need resuscitation. Amen? Amen. So therefore, in like manner, God says, I have a plan of how I can bring about revival and reformation to my people. Now, brothers and sisters, you have to understand, this is a very deep topic. There's no way this thing can be covered in its fullness in just one hour. So therefore, the ministers have come here throughout this weekend to touch on various different points about what can bring about the revival and reformation. Now, the privilege that God gave me was to talk about the actual work of soul winning. The work of soul winning, if rightly done, the Bible lets us know has the ability to bring about a revival in the heart of the people. Go to the book of Isaiah 58 with me. Let's look at it again. We're going to look at Isaiah 58, and then I'm going to deal with some points here, and then we're going to address some things on the screen. In Isaiah the 58th chapter, you will find that the Bible tells us this, Isaiah, the 58th chapter. God actually gives us a formula on how a revival and reformation can take place in the hearts of his own people. How healing, righteousness, all sorts of great, beautiful, blessed experiences. This is one of many experiences that can help bring about the revival and reformation amongst God's people. Now, notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 58. And let's look at verse six. Watch this. It says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Now, if we were to do this work, the Bible says something would happen. It's it's the very first word in verse 8. What's the first word there? It says then, meaning that. When this happens, something is going to happen. It says, then what's going to happen? Shall thy light break forth as the morning? It says, and thine health shall spring forth how? Speedily. Speedily. And thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. God says that in the work of reaching those who are lost, whether it is in the church or out of the church. Are there sinners in the church? Yes. So therefore, when we reach those individuals who may be living in a lifestyle of sin in the church and we bring to them Jesus and his truth and his love and his last day message for his people and they awaken to righteousness. In the eyes of heaven, that's a soul saved. Can you say amen to that? And so it is that when we see those individuals out there in the street and all living in their uh, in their base lifestyles and when we bring God's message to them and they wake up to the light as well. That is also a soul saved. Amen. So therefore, John's work was a work where he win souls within as well as souls without. But some people would say today, Brother Lemon, the church is so bad. The church is in such a condition that we need not to reach outside. We need to just focus within. After all, did not Jesus himself say that he came not but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Well, you know what? The statement is right, but the understanding is wrong. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In Desire of Ages, page 402, listen to what it says here. It says, when he said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he stated the truth. Now watch this. There was a Syrophoenician woman, a woman who was not part of the house of Israel. And Jesus went to minister to that dear sister. She was not part of the house of Israel. But Jesus went and ministered unto her. Nevertheless, when the other Israelite brethren were looking upon her like Jesus, why are you even wasting your time with her? But Jesus found something precious in that lovely lady. Now watch this. It says in Desire of Ages 402. When he said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he stated the truth. And in his work for the Canaanite woman, he was fulfilling his commission. Listen to what it says. This woman was one of the lost sheep that Israel should have rescued. It was their appointed work. The work which they had neglected that Christ was doing. There is a place for reaching out to those without as well. Of course there is. In fact, you'll know that there are several things that causes individuals to not see a need to reach outside sometimes. And I'm serious because there are certain mindsets. I believe that the two extremes that the devil has tricked many of God's people is one. He tells some only focus within. Just reach all the sleeping Adventists within. Don't do any outreach because those people, they're going to, you know, they they may have another opportunity. Brothers and sisters, you got to check and balance the quotes from Spirit of Prophecy. Every time a non-Adventist dies, probation closed. There is no repentance in the grave and all people are precious in the eyes of God. How can we think that we are supposedly going to ignore the non-Adventist world? Because we see the crisis within. That's why if we look at John as a model, we won't have this problem. John understood win souls within, wind souls without. We should be doing the same thing. Now, you'll notice that Jesus, he brings about a reality to us that I believe is startling. There was a statement in 1900 that I want you to consider. It was in the year 1900 that a statement was made under the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at this quotation. The quotation says this. It says, the Lord does not now do what? Work. The Lord. Now, when we, when we seek to do soul winning, and I'm talking about specifically reaching without, we are working to bring souls to God's truth, right? Inspiration says that over 100 years ago, the Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth. Someone may say, well, if the Lord doesn't work to do it, then why in the world should I be doing it? Right. That's that's almost a natural conclusion. Well, what we first want to do is make sure we understand what the text is saying. You see, again, brothers and sisters, I believe there's two extremes. Some extremes are, well, let's only do work within. That's an extreme. That's not that's not biblical. Then there's some who say, well, let's ignore the problems within and let's just go without and bring everybody into a messed up, dirty old church. <laughs> brothers and sisters, that's an extreme as well. God says there's a work to be done in both places. And I'm not here to put percentages to say 70 percent here, 30 percent there. God, through his spirit, will help us understand the percentage factors. But what I'm saying is, is that there is a need to go in both directions. Now, it says the Lord does not now work to bring any souls into the truth. Is that right? No, that's not what the quote says. The, The quote says the Lord does not now work to bring Many. So that means that we at this present hour, we are not going to see Pentecost part two, where we're going to see thousands upon thousands baptized in a day and all these other wonderful things. God says, I got to finish up my cleanup work through the shaking before that day comes. But the quotation did not say the Lord does not now work to bring any. It says many. And thank God, because brothers and sisters, if the quote said the Lord does not now work to bring any, that means that I wouldn't be here. That means many of you wouldn't be here if the Lord wasn't working to bring any. There are some that Christ is reaching, and when Jesus brings people into the church, he brings them in the church that they may be part of the solution and not part of the problem, like the mixed multitude. So there are some that God is still bringing into the church. But let me be honest with you. While it is true, because, oh, you know, let me, I, I, I dare not go move on without bringing out this point. I've had several friends share with me uh, associates in ministry in different places where they'll say, well, you know, the Lord does not, not work to bring many souls, so we need to focus within and, and so on and so forth. And I say, well, I don't think you're reading the writings of the prophet right. Can I tell you why? The reason why is because what year did I say was this written? This is volume six of the testimonies. It was written around 1900. But here's what I thought was interesting. In 1902, the same prophet, under the same inspiration, Made this statement. She says, everywhere the light of truth is to shine forth. How many places? Everywhere. It says, everywhere the light of the truth is to shine forth, that hearts now in the sleep of ignorance may be awakened and converted in all countries and cities, and the gospel is to be proclaimed. That's evangelism, page 19. Now, she said in 1900, the Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth, but then she says in 1902 that we are to go everywhere to all the different cities and to go reach the people who don't know the truth. Are you following? How about this one? 1903. The places in which the truth has never been proclaimed are the best places in which to work. It says the truth is to take possession of the will of those who have never before heard it. That is from the book Evangelism, page 21. So again, 1900, the Lord does not not work to bring many souls into the truth. But 1902, she says, go everywhere to every city and bring the truth to the people who know it not. 1903, she says, do the same thing. There's quotations from 1908, 1911, and the list goes on. So even the very prophet that people quote to say we are only, hear me good, only supposed to do an in-reach work, brothers and sisters, I don't think they're doing a faithful line upon line, precept upon precept. God wants us to understand there's a work to be done within, there's a work to be done without. And this cannot be done by might or by power. It's only going to be done by God's spirit. And that's why we're pleading for the falling afresh, so that we can have the power to be those witnesses, like we heard last night in Acts 1 and verse 8, to be those witnesses. But now I want to get back to this quote. Because on Wednesday night, we looked at John's message and John's method. Amen? But today we're going to look at something different. Today, brothers and sisters, what we're going to look at, we're going to look at John's life. You see, the Lord does not now work to bring many souls into the truth. Now, if that was true in 1900, I know it's got to be true in 2012 because things have not gotten better. We must embrace our realities. I told that uh, uh, those those gentlemen in Romania, I told them, I said, listen, I said, gentlemen, if the church was doing great, it does not need a revival and reformation. Let's stop deceiving ourselves. Even alcoholics know they have to acknowledge they're an alcoholic before they get off of alcohol. Even a drug addict, they have to acknowledge I'm a drug addict before they're going to get off of drugs. Brothers and sisters, you and I must realize that many of us, we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's why we need a revival. The sooner we acknowledge our condition and our problem is the better off we shall be. Amen? Amen. Now, why is it that the Lord would literally say, I am not going to work? to bring many souls into the truth. Why why would God say something like that? I believe with all of my heart, nobody wants people saved more than Jesus. I don't care how much we cry and plead about our relatives and friends, Jesus will cry and plead more. No one wants people saved more than Jesus. Amen? So when Jesus says, I am not working to bring many people into this truth right now, that means we need to understand, Father, why? Jesus, why? Why? What is it that would tie your hands and make you literally block people from coming into your truth? Your church. You want to know why? How many of you would like to know why? Let's notice. It goes on to say, what's the reason why? It says because of who? The church members. You mean church members can literally frustrate God bringing people into the church? It says because of the church members who have never been converted. You mean to tell me it's possible to meet somebody who's a dry sinner, dip them in water, and they come up a wet sinner? Never been converted. They're church members. Brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to this because this is a time for self-examination. Could I have just been made wet, but I've never experienced conversion? It says because of the church members who have never been converted, and then look what it says next, and those who were once converted, but who have what? Backslidden. Look at what God says. What influence would these unconsecrated members have on new converts? It says, would they not make of no effect the God-given message which his people are to bear? God literally says, because of the condition of my people, God says, because of the fact that they think they're all right, when in truth, they're all wrong. You know, that's the, that, that is the ultimate essence of the issue with Laodicea. A people who think I'm all right, when really, they're all wrong. All wrong. Jesus says, it even frustrates my ability to bring people in my church. Because what influence would these individuals have upon my people? Now, watch this. I believe as a medical missionary, you should ascertain the cause. And I I appreciate the fact that that, that, uh, Brother McIntosh uh, spoke last night about the physician and the minister working together. Amen. Amen. But brothers and sisters, I want to let you know this. In volume seven of the testimony to the church, page 62, it says we have come to a time that every member of the church should take hold of medical missionary work. Mm -hmm. How many members? Every member. Is every member supposed to be a physician? No. So that means that you do not need to be a physician in order to be a medical missionary. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Now, let's go on. What was the issue then? What was the issue then that caused the people either to never be converted or to have once been converted but have backslidden? I wonder what was connected to this behavior. Notice. Let all examine their own what? Practices. There was a practice that the people were doing that literally was causing and the, and, and a certain characteristic in themselves that literally frustrated God from bringing people into the church. I wonder what it was. Look at what it says. Let all examine their own practices to see if they are not indulging in that which is po- a positive injury to them. What is it talking about? It says, let them dispense with every unhealthful gratification in what? Eating and drinking. You mean to tell me that the people's eating and drinking habits had an effect upon their minds, that had an effect upon their characters, that brought them to a situation where they were not behaving like converted people, and as a result of that, God said, I will not bring people into the church. Not many. It goes on to say, Some go to distant countries to seek a better climate, but wherever they may be, the stomach creates for them a malarious atmosphere. It says they bring upon themselves suffering that no one can alleviate. Let them bring their daily practice into harmony with nature's laws. And by doing as well as believing, an atmosphere may be created about both soul and body that will be a savor of life unto life. This is why we cannot just focus on John's message and method, but we also must focus on the life of John the Baptist. It was the life of John the Baptist that gave so much power to his message. In fact, go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter four. Let's look at this. Deuteronomy four. Let's see how the book of Deuteronomy chapter four spells it out. Now, something dangerous is going wrong. You're having me speak without a clock in front of me. So you need to put that clock there if you want to put a check on time. I was told a clock will be here. I don't see it. So I'm not going to be held accountable for if I go over. Deuteronomy chapter four. Where is it? Oh, Okay, there it is. Deuteronomy four. Deuteronomy chapter four. Let's notice what the Bible says. Watch this now. In Deuteronomy chapter four, you will find that God gave a formula to Israel that was designed to make them effective witnesses to other nations. Look at what the Bible says. Deuteronomy four. The Bible says, behold, verse five. Behold, I have taught you what? Statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now, God tells us what to do with these statutes and judgments. What does it say in the next verse? It says, Keep therefore and what? Do them. Now, this is not a profession. God is not saying, Go ahead and preach it and teach it to everybody. God is saying, Keep therefore and do them. In other words, obey them. What would happen when Israel would obey the things God told them to do? Look at what it says next. Keep therefore and do them for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The Bible always taught that it is not truth known, but truth lived that gives power to the message. God says, if Israel keeps and does what I tell them to do, he says, when the other nations see it. They're going to say, surely this is a wise and understanding people, brothers and sisters. there was a young man I met many years ago, and he made a statement that was so powerful. He said, preach the gospel. Only use words if necessary. The lifestyle, our lives. Should be of such a nature that when people zoom in on us and they look at us and they see that peculiarity, they can say, you're so different. Why do you do what you do? It prompts them to ask, why do you dress the way you dress? Why do you eat the way you eat? Why do you do things the way you do it? And that's the door that opens that we can share God's truth as it is in Jesus Christ with them. And this is why the first phase we're going to look at is John's diet. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter three, Matthew, chapter three. The Bible says in Matthew chapter three, it tells us something about John's diet that is amazing. In Matthew, the third chapter, when John was, of course, proclaiming the wonderful gospel herald and letting the people know to repent for the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew three. Let's consider it. Verse one. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4. And the same John had his raiments of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. The Bible says, as it gives us an indication of John's diet, that it was clearly a diet that was pure vegetable. When you look at the word locust, many a times it can come up as the locust bean, or it deals with vegetation. John was Uh, partaking of a plant-based diet, if you would. Now, John was not eating a bunch of big bugs that looked like grasshoppers. John was eating locusts. He was eating a plant-based diet. Now, how do we know that? Inspiration also helps us with this. It says his diet, oh my, (laughs) notice, bring it back, bring it back. There's a reason for that picture. Bring it back. His diet, purely what? purely vegetable of locusts and wild honey was a rebuke to the indulgence of appetite and the what gluttony that everywhere prevailed his very diet, his, his, what he was eating and drinking. John said the Bible tells us and the spirit of prophecy magnifies that it was a powerful witness to the people that it rebuked their gluttonous habits and all these other things. Now, John knew something we should know. Go to the book of Exodus chapter five. I love to I love to, to bring this point out because I believe it brings out a very powerful point. Exodus chapter five. You remember God sent Moses out and God was telling Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And of course, uh, you know, Aaron was a mouthpiece. Moses felt he stuttered too much and all these other things. But notice what the Bible says in uh, Exodus chapter five. In Exodus chapter five, verses one and two. Here's what the Bible says. It says, and afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? What did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Now, what Pharaoh said, was that that wise or was that foolish? That was definitely foolish. Now, I would want to know. What would have motivated or pushed Pharaoh to say such a foolish thing like who is the Lord? Now, brothers and sisters, I was searching through the scriptures and I found at least one reason. How many? I found at least one reason, I believe, why Pharaoh said who is the Lord. And it's a lesson for you and I go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30 In Proverbs, the 30th chapter. Let's notice something the Bible says. Proverbs, the 30th chapter. And I believe that John the Baptist understood this principle. And that's why his diet was of what it was. Proverbs, the 30th chapter. We're going to look at verse 7. When you get there, please say amen. In Proverbs 30 and verse 7, the Bible says, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. What's that last sentence say? Feed me with food Convenient for me. In other words, feed me with food sufficient for me. Give me just enough food. Why did John say that? He says, verse 9, lest I be what? Full. Full and deny thee and say, what? Who is the Lord? John, or rather Solomon, understood. That if I partake of too much food and I eat beyond what is sufficient for me, it can affect my mind to the point that I can end up denying God and even dare to say, who is he that I should even obey his voice? The power of gluttony. No wonder the Bible says both the glutton and the drunkard shall both come to poverty. You see, brothers and sisters, there's something we need to understand about gluttony. I I was thinking, I was studying this thing out. And gluttony, you know, that's a a picture of gluttony, isn't it? That's a a horrible, I mean, that's death on a plate. But people eat like this. People eat like this, whether it be veggie burger or real burgers. And you know what? God understood that when we do these things it can have an effect on us to such a point that it can cause us and affect our minds that we may even deny him that's why the bible said put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite cuz if you if you and i are given to appetite it is basically a slow suicide anyhow put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite can you imagine that Brothers and sisters, we need to understand something. You see, I was doing some research, and I want you to look at this. Look at this quotation here. We are told flesh food also is harmful. Its naturally stimulating effect should be a sufficient argument against its use, and the almost universally diseased condition of animals makes it doubly objectionable. It tends to irritate the nerves and to excite the passions, thus giving the balance of power to the lower propensities. Councils on Diets and Foods 397. When an individual overeat, it affects the mind in such a way that they're not able to make good decisions, yea, righteous decisions, because the mind is not connected to God. So therefore, what governs their decisions now are the lower passions. This is why when we counsel and talk with young people and, and adults as well, who are constantly giving in to sexual lust, we begin to investigate their appetite. Because many a times that's the reason why it exists. Because of how individuals eat and drink. But, brothers and sisters, it goes deeper than just flesh food because you and I can actually practice gluttony even with healthy food. Watch this now. I'm going to show you something. Watch this. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Gluttony is the prevailing sin of this age. Lustful appetite makes slaves of men and women and beclouds their intellects and stupefies their moral sensibilities to such a degree that the sacred... Elevated truths of God's word are not appreciated. The lower propensities have ruled men and women. Now, lustful appetite. But again, this can also affect even tofu eaters, healthy food. It is possible that just because the food is plant based does not mean that we have free reign to eat what we want, when we want, how we want. Let me show you what I mean. Notice this. It says it is possible to eat immoderately even of what kind of food? wholesome food. It does not follow that because one has discarded the use of hurtful articles of diet, he can eat just as much as he pleases. It says overeating, no matter what the quality of the food, clogs the living machine and thus hinders it in its work. Do you see that? Christian temperance, Bible hygiene, page 51. So you'll find that God is trying to let you and I know that our eating and drinking habits can literally frustrate God being able to communicate with our minds. And as a result of that, it can put us in a place where God can speak present truth to our mind and we'll fight against it. And when we do that, God says, I dare not bring the masses into a church where this is going on. And this is why the Lord does not not work to bring many souls into the truth. And you know what? Some people say, well, that's Ellen White and all this other stuff. I don't want to hear what Ellen White. Brothers and sisters, if you don't believe Jesus, let me show you what Barabbas is saying. Listen to this. The world can tell you the same things that the Bible was already telling us. Notice what the world says. The world says, this is by Catherine Harmon, March 28, 2010. It says, a new study published online, March twenty-eighth, in Nature Neuroscience, describes these rats, indulgent tribulations, adding to research literature on how Excess food intake can trigger changes in the brain. So this is, this is something that even the world is finding out without any religion. It says, alterations that seem to create a neurochemical dependency in the eater or user. Something happens in the brain when individuals overeat. It affects something called dopamine, which is used to help the frontal lobe make right decisions. Let me show you what I mean. Look at this. The functions of dopamine. It says cognition and frontal cortex in the frontal lobes. Dopamine controls the flow of information from other areas of the brain, meaning that if I overeat, it's going to cause a chemical change in my brain. That's going to alter the effect of the dopamine, which enables my mind to make right decisions. So notice what it says. Dopamine disorders in this region of the brain can cause a decline in neurocognitive functions like what? Especially memory. This is why some people can't memorize scripture. Brother Lemon, how do you memorize scripture? Well, first and foremost, you got to get a control on your diet. But it also says, attention, this is why people fall asleep. This is why people find themselves that as soon as somebody starts talking, especially about something their hearts are not interested in, all of a sudden they're looking at you and then their mind just kind of wanders in space. (laughs) Attention! But then even worse than both of them, it says memory, attention, and what else? Problem solving. And brothers and sisters, do you know... That problem-solving, I don't care if you're black, white, red, yellow, or green, it does not matter if you're male or female. It does not matter if we're big or skinny. One thing we all have in common is problems. And Ministry of Healing, page 363, says the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. So when we have problems, we can find the simplified solution in the gospel. But if our minds are messed up, we can't solve problems, brothers and sisters. This was something we were supposed to learn. And this is John understood. John knew that I am called by God to be a problem solver. John saw problems in Israel. John saw problems in the world. And John knew I must get a control over appetite and not let appetite control me so that I may be used mightily by God to do the work he has assigned me to do. And God can accept no less because remember, I showed you Wednesday night, John's work is our work. But it wasn't just John's diet. It was also something else. Let me go past these because time. Yes. It was John's dress. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. John's dress. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 3, remember what the Bible says now, it told us not only about his simplified diet, but it also tells us about his amazing Dress habits. Let's notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Matthew chapter three, verse four again, it says And the same John had his raiment of what camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins. John had very simple, humble clothing. John did not wear cheap clothing, per se, but he had very simple, humble clothing and his dress was also a witness to the people as much as his diet. You see, remember when God told Israel to do something. God told Israel, he said, look, I want you to do this. God gave Israel a dress code. Now, one of the things God told Israel is you remember he told them that I want you to put these blue ribbons at the borders of your garments. Remember that? Now, God told Israel to do that for a very specific reason. He said, speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon them the fringe of the borders, a ribbon of what? It was a ribbon of blue. Now, what did what was God's intention in telling them to put this ribbon of blue on their garments? Notice it says, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and do what? Remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. It says, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a whoring. Literally, the dress code was to be a reminder of who you are. God says that when you look upon your clothing, when you pick out your clothing, you do not just go shopping and say, oh, this is going to make me look cute. Or you buy your clothing and say, well, this is going to make me look like Beyonce or some other major hip hop, R&B, pop, heavy metal or whatever artist. No, brothers and sisters, when we get our clothes, we were supposed to get it to the point that when we wear it, it would be a reminder to ourselves and a reflection of God to others. That's what God said about dress. He closes by saying that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Numbers 15, verses 38 to 40. Brothers and sisters, dress reform has become so trivial, unfortunately. For some reason, people think, oh, what well, does dress have to do with anything? So we just go ahead and interpret it in our own minds. And our own minds, God already told us. He says your mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. Why would you trust something desperately wicked to pick out your clothes? Are you following The Bible says the heart, but the heart represents the mind. Why would you and I trust something desperately wicked to say that's good clothing and that's bad? That's why we have the dress issues we have today. Am I saying it of my own opinion? Heaven forbid ministers don't speak what they what they want to say. They speak only inspiration. Notice our words, our actions and our dress are daily living preachers. Brothers and sisters, I guarantee you. Before you buy any item of clothing going forward. When you look at that article of clothing in the store, ask yourself this very important question. I'm serious. If you you were to ask yourself just this question, you would see something powerful take place in your mind if you are even minutely willing to hear the voice of God. When you pick out your clothing, before you pick it out, say, what sermon will this outfit preach? Every sermon has an outfit preached. When I see young, especially young black men, and I see them with their pants hanging off their backside, big old hoodies, and they're walking around, they got that thump in their walk and everything. When I see that, I'm saying to myself, "Uh uh-huh. That's a sermon, is it not? Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 10 talks about a woman who was wearing the attire of a harlot. Clothing gives messages, brothers and sisters. If you and I were to look at the clothes we buy and say, what sermon will this outfit preach? Because every article of clothing preaches something. Let's finish the quote. It says our words, our actions and our dress are daily living preachers gathering with Christ or doing what? Scattering abroad. So that's another thing we just learned. Whatever you and I are wearing, even right now, it either gathers people to Jesus or it pushes people further away from Jesus. Sisters, when a brother walks up to you and he's more interested in your anatomy than the words coming out of your mouth, that's a scattering outfit you're wearing. Are you following Brothers, when you when you want to go ahead and put something on that fits a little tight, so now I can go ahead and show your muscles to whoever's looking at you or whatever, brothers, that is a scattering outfit. That's scattering garments. If we were to study the sanctuary, you would understand that when the when Jesus looked at the body, remember Jesus called the body a temple? Amen. Jesus called the body a temple. So when I think about the sanctuary and I think about the body, I can see some parallels then. I can learn some lessons from the sanctuary. Amen. Well, here it is that when you remember, if, if, if an individual were to try to go into the most holy place, what would happen to them? Would they die? Yes. Now, watch this. If you really think about it, if you really think about it, was the common man allowed to go into the most holy? Was the common priest allowed? So it was only the high priest. Amen. So therefore, the common man, when God equated our bodies to a temple, you remember God says, I will write my law in your heart. Huh? So therefore, when God says, I'll write my law in your heart, then that means if God will write his law in my heart, then the law was in the most holy place. So therefore, I can see lessons from the most holy place, even teaching me lessons about my body. Now watch this. Was the common man allowed to see in the most holy place? So therefore, the common man should not know what your body looks like. Was the common priest allowed in the most holy place? You know, the Bible says that every single person under this tent right now is a, is a royal priesthood. That means that even the common church member has no right to know what the particulars of your body looks like. The only person who has a right to see what an individual's body looks like is that common priest who courts that young lady. And when he courts her, he asks her a hand in marriage. And when that gentleman asks her a hand in marriage, that common priest just graduated and became a high priest. And that high priest has every right to see inside the secret of the most holy place. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand, we are told obedience to fashion is pervading our seventh day Adventist churches and is doing more than any other power to separate our people from God. And I say this to our dear minister friends and Bible teachers and and all of those who have been called in the work. Brothers and sisters, do not neglect to instruct the people on dress. And do not tell them what you think. Show them what inspiration says. Because literally, our dress is either scattering or gathering. I want to gather. How about you? Amen? Amen? Well, there was one more thing that I'm going to highlight. John's home. Did you know John's home also was part of what enabled him to preach that gospel so well? You see, Moses, I mean, rather Noah, one of the reasons why Noah was such a great preacher is because Ellen White says in Story of Redemption and Patriarchs and Prophets, she says that every time Noah's hammer hit the ark, it was a sermon. Those people looked at Noah and they said, that brother believes his message. The problem is that when they see the Seventh-day Adventists say, time is almost finished. A Sunday law is soon to come upon us and the crisis is going to break and we begin to preach, preach, preach. But brothers and sisters, when people see our lies and they see that we're gluttons just like the world, they see that we're dressing just like the world, you know what it does? It literally kills the message. It makes the people say, you don't even believe your message, so why should I? That's literally what people are thinking. But it was not just his diet. It was not just his dress. It was also his home. John lived in that beautiful Judean wilderness, and John was there, and he understood the need to get away from the city environments. He understood something. Notice, inspiration says, he subjected himself to privation and solitude in the wilderness, where he could preserve the sacred sense of the majesty of God by studying his great book of nature. It goes on to say, it was an atmosphere calculated. In other words, God thought this through. It was calculated. God says, I know what happens when I can get my people out of the city environments and put them in country environments. Notice, it was calculated to perfect moral culture and to keep the fear of the Lord continually before him. John, the forerunner of Christ, did not expose himself to evil conversation and the corrupting influences of the world. He feared the effect upon his conscience that sin might not appear to him so exceeding sinful. Brothers and sisters, you and I got to understand, when we pass those billboards on the highways all the time, there comes a point that there probably was a time that when we saw a naked woman, it would say, whoa, that, it was shameful. In the Bible, nakedness and shame always go together. There was a time that somebody could see a naked woman on a billboard and they would say, oh, that's shameful. I can't look at that. But nowadays, we see it so much that now it's just common. And we look and we say, oh, look at that. And we keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. In other words, we go through something called desensitization. We are not moved anymore by the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Because we see it so much, we're living around it, we're surrounded by it, we're always hearing it. Therefore, you don't think that's having an effect on your mind? Brothers and sisters, when my family and I got out of the city into the country, what I saw it do to my children, you could never pay me any amount of money to move back into the city. What I saw it do, and I'm not saying my children are perfect. That's not what I am saying, but I've seen my children grow in God's grace. And brothers and sisters, I am amazed at how an environment, an atmosphere can have such an incredible effect on an individual's mind. John understood this. God says he wants us to understand it. And so you'll find that it says he chose rather to have his home in the wilderness where his senses would not be perverted by his surroundings. Should we not learn something from this example of one whom Christ honored and of whom he said among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Conflict and courage. Page 276. Brothers and sisters, did you know there's a high purpose for country living? A high purpose. You see, a lot of people think country living is about hiding. Brothers and sisters, country living is not about hiding. Satan is a spirit. You can't hide from him. I don't care how many P.O. boxes you get, and I don't care how many bushes you put in front of your driveway. Satan knows where you are. It is not about hiding from the devil. You can't hide from Satan. That's not why God gave us country living. But sometimes people say, oh, but you know what? I don't, I don't want to do country living because we have to reach the people in the city. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. You know the greatest mission of every single one of us under this roof right now? You want to know what our greatest mission is in life? To please God. If if I could summarize it, if I could summarize the great mission of you and I in just a few words, Your, your great mission is to please God. Do you know the Bible tells us about somebody who pleased God? Go to the book of Hebrews 11 as we prepare to close. Watch this. Hebrews 11. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, I want to show you somebody who pleased God. The Bible says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, Notice what the text says as it relates to one who pleased God. Hmm. The Bible says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and I want you to look at verse five. The Bible says, by faith, by what? It says, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Now, brothers and sisters, for Enoch to have been translated, would you agree that, that, that that's a high level of pleasing God? Look at what the text says next. It says that Enoch had a testimony. It says, for before his translation, he had this testimony. What was his testimony? He pleased God. I don't know about you, but I'd love to walk with Jesus as Enoch walked in days of old. Because Enoch pleased God to the point that God said, son, you look so much like me and you're so close to my home. You might as well come with me. And he took Enoch home. I want to have that experience. How about you? But you know what was interesting about Enoch? Let me show you something about Enoch. If you want to have that same testimony like Enoch had, perhaps we can learn some lessons to do what Enoch did. Watch this. Did you know that we can learn faith through nature? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes. Verily, their sound went into all the world and their words went unto the end of the world. Now, you, this is, primarily speaking, this is the preaching and teaching of the word, but there's another lesson we can pull from it. Because those very words in Romans 10 are also reflective of the words in Psalms 19. Notice the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day it uttereth speech and night unto night it showeth knowledge. It says there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Talking about nature. Nature has a voice. And listen to what it says. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Almost the exact verbiage that Paul used in Romans 10. Nature has a way of increasing our faith and helping us understand God. That's the high purpose, brothers and sisters, of country living. Notice, God has surrounded us with nature's beautiful scenery to attract and interest the mind. It is his design that we should associate the glories of nature with his character. It says, if we faithfully study the book of nature, we shall find it a fruitful source for contemplating the infinite love and power of God. This is coming from Adventist Home, page 144. And so you'll find as we close, it says he, Enoch, this is talking about Enoch now, the one who pleased God. Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. Now, if Enoch didn't do it, why do you feel you need to? Didn't Enoch please God? So if we want to please God, I believe we can follow that example. Look, it says Enoch did not make his abode with the wicked. He didn't live in the midst of the wicked. It says he did not locate in Sodom thinking to save Sodom. Are you following, saints? It says he placed himself in his family where the atmosphere would be as pure as possible. Then it goes on to say, after proclaiming his message, he always took back with him to his place of retirement. Some who had received the warning, some of these became overcomers and died before the flood came. Manuscript 42, 1900. Brothers and sisters, the high purpose of country living that we might learn of God. And then when we learn of God, we go ahead and reach people out there in those cities and we bring them back to our Adventist homes. You know, when people see an Adventist home, it does something to them. It changes them. Because there is no greater witness than they see when people see the life of Jesus lived off the pulpit. No greater witness. John had a message. John had a method. John had a certain lifestyle. And it was through this wonderful combination that God used John mightily to the point that Jesus said he was the greatest of all prophets. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to learn from John's example. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, some of us may say, and I want you to hear this because I'm appealing to you now. Some of us may say, well... When it comes to my diet, when it comes to my dress, when it comes to where I live or whatever it may be, I struggle. I run into challenges and I have all these problems. What am I supposed to do? You know, I I went through an experience like that myself. I remember I was feeling so trapped by the power of sin. I keep trying to stop doing bad things and I would find myself back into it again. And so on. I tried to keep giving my heart to Jesus and I kept failing. Can anybody relate to that? One day God showed me something. I just so happened to be reading the book Christ Object Lessons. I went to page 159 and it said something very powerful in that page. It told us that while God wants us to have victory over self and sin, it says on that very same page, but no person of themselves can overcome self. And it says he can only consent to let Christ do the work. And then it says, and when this is understood, it says, then the language of the soul will be. Oh, listen to the language of the soul. It says the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unChrist-like self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me to a holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. I believe many of us need to make that language our language today. Brothers and sisters, don't rebel against God's truth. Rebellion is as witchcraft, and the Bible makes it clear that witches are separated from God. You don't want to be separated from Jesus, do you? Dress, diet, country living are absolutely necessary, but all of them are fruits of righteousness. It's not the root. When we're connected to Jesus, because you love him, you do anything he says. If any of you in this room realize, Lord, I've been rebelling against your words of truth. Lord, I didn't know these truths, but I want to go ahead and be in compliance with it. Either way, some of you, you may say, I've been rebelling. Some of you may say, you know what? I never knew this, but now I'm willing to comply. Whatever it may be, if you fit into either one of those categories, but today you're willing to surrender that and say, Jesus, now I'm not just going to sing the song. Now I'm going to live the song all to Jesus. I surrender. If that's your testimony, you're willing to comply with Jesus and leave that life of rebellion or that life of ignorance and comply with him and let his will be done today. Would you please stand to your feet with me? Amen. And you will find that all God's biddings are also his enablings. Through the power of the indwelling Spirit of Christ, he will show you how to walk as Enoch walked. He'll show you how to work as John worked. And ultimately, he will show you how to reflect a character that is his own. And we will be able to finish the work in this generation. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to our hearts this morning. What a wonderful Sabbath school, Lord. We praise you for the things that we have learned the things that we have been reminded. Through the power of your spirit, Lord, help us to walk in this truth and to walk in this light and to keep pace with this light, Father, as we see the day approaching. Thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.